Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. This is another episode in the Sundance series. I'm very, very happy to be joining forces again after, I don't know, now several years of of Sundance podcasting with Amy Taubin. Hello, Amy. Hi, Nick. From my desk, which has Sundance screens all over it. (laughs) (laughs) You mean you have more than one monitor? Is that what you mean? I have more than one monitor. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) Well, you watch one movie at a time still, right? I do. You can't watch more than one movie. Actually, if you have, uh, they caught me having not closed screens and I had three (laughs) piled up um, Uh and they caught me and they said, you can't do that. Um, (laughs) But I only watch one movie at a time. Yes. For the record. (laughs) Um, just to sort of talk generally about this year's Sundance. I mean, how how has your experience been, and what have you what have you made of this this year's edition? Well, I think that Sundance really has down their online platform for streaming movies. I think this is the best situation of streaming movies I've ever seen. I mean, it's only we've only been doing it for two years at festivals. Uh, And they did this very clever thing. They don't give it to anyone, but I imagine that they let industry people who pay the highest rate for a package, plus privileged press like us, see every film in a library. And you can basically see every film in the festival in your own time uh, over a nine-day period. They come into your library after they've premiered. So you're not stuck with just two time slots for films, they live mm-hmm. in your library and you can go any hour of the day and night and see them. And that's fantastic. It's so much better than running around Park City in a shuttle bus and living mm-hmm. in condos that are COVID central and all of that. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I don't know why they took so long to decide not to do it half and half, but this couldn't be better. Yeah, yeah. I mean, relatively speaking, I guess it was two weeks yeah. before. Yeah. 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 Uh, what I don't like are the wraparounds. You know, before the film, there are regular things that precede films, and one is the ode to the land and that we are only here because Native people who really this land is theirs or they belong to the land are allowing us. But after that, last year, they did the introductions and the Q&As so well because it was just like Sundance. It was really down-home Zoom Mm. links. And you were in people's living room and they were not lit up very well. And even the festival director was at home in her living room without hair and makeup. And, And it was great. It was like what Sundance is. And now they've got this really ugly aqua and orange balloons inside some kind of tunnel. And you see people on a TikTok format, which is uh, a vertical rectangle, uh, imprisoned at the end of this aqua tunnel with orange balloons (laughs) bouncing around them. It is awful. (laughs) It is one of the most off-putting things I've ever seen. That's so true. I hadn't thought of it that way, but it is like a, a TikTok box, or it's like like General Zod and Superman trapped in this box or something. Just like. 
you know, and the thing about Sundance, it's, it's pretty homey. It still is, even if uh, it's more sophisticated and, you know, there are red carpets and lots of publicists running around when it's live. It still is this funky down-home mining town, and they can never overcome that. So to do mm-hmm. it like this just loses the sense, any sense of being in Park City. <laughs> <laughs> Have you done any of the things that they tell you you can do, like go on the virtual reality platforms and go to the bars and hang out with your avatars, <laughs> with your friends' avatars? <laughs> you refer, of course, to the spaceship, I believe. Yes, I do. Um, <laughs> I I have not. I have, unfortunately, not. I mean, I, er, early on, I did, like, en- enter the arena and up with my whatever I uploaded a picture but I didn't upload a picture of my face I just uploaded a picture of one of my cats uh-huh. so it looked like I had a cat cat head but I mean at the particular time I was in there I don't know if I I, I was like before anyone was there and then I just I just never got back <laughs> but yeah have you ventured no I have not even though this year I did upload a picture but I haven't ventured okay. but I did read Scott McCauley in filmmaker mm-hmm. in his introduction talked about how on opening night he tried to get into this space spaceship spaceship and he just got kept getting bounced to the outside where finally he heard Robert Redford doing his intro to Welcome to Sundance when it had happened just audio uh, the uh, <laughs> afternoon before and that's as far as he could get so he gave up <laughs> it's not for yeah, I, at some point I'll go there, if only because I did watch this this documentary we met in virtual reality, which made it seem kind of uh, dare I say, uh, fun. So I, I will, <laughs> I will. But in in the real world of the of the of the movie screens, or at least the the monitor screens, I, I mean, is so accustomed to having to do the jigsaw puzzle of you know making everything fit, not to have to go from theater to theater in those awful shuttle buses. I mean, Sundance is a really hard festival to work. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if that affects how movies surface or, or not. You know, I mean, I don't know how that really works in this in this format, you know. Yeah, I don't either. I heard that one of the opening night films, the Volcano mm-hmm. film, was sold for a good price, but not an outstanding price. And that was the first you know, substantial sale of the festival. Right, the National Geographic, yeah. Yeah, but that's silly because I really wish I could see that film on the big screen. That was the only film that I thought, well, it would be better if I saw this project, these images projected. Yeah. Because aside from the images of volcanoes doing terrible things, erupting in different colors and looking really dangerous, um, there's not much there. Yeah. It weirdly reminded me of a Renier movie in a way, like one of those combinations of like romance and like <laughs> science in a way, you know, like uh, Mon Oncle d'Amérique or something. Oh, yeah. Or, yeah. Um, you know. yeah, that's probably um, what they were thinking of. I just didn't think it ever held. But let's talk about uh, some of the highlights for you so far. And I think probably one big standout was Nanny. There are a lot of one-word titles, and this is this is this is one of them. What did you make of Danny? 
I think Nanny is the only great film I've seen so far at the festival. I mean, I've seen a lot more than usual films that are very good and very interesting. But, you know, like a film that you see at Sundance and you think, can this really be as great as I think it is? Which was how I reacted years ago to Donnie Darko and how I reacted years ago to Poison. I think this is an absolutely great film. And I don't know what flag the film is flying. I guess it's a U.S. flag, but uh, the protagonist is from Senegal. And the culture in which the film is rooted is Senegalese, is West Africa. It basically is a very elaborate and absolutely gorgeous version of Usmani Simbeni's Black Girl, Mm. that very simple black and white film about a woman from, I forget what African country, comes to be a nanny to an upper middle class family in France and gradually goes crazy. And that's basically, I mean, this film is more complex and certainly contemporary, but that's the basis of it. And the setting is... It's definitely New York. The couple lives in a large loft somewhere in Tribeca or somewhere. Yeah, with like a river view of some sort. Mm -hmm. And the husband travels a lot or is away. And so, you know, when he comes back, he ends up being kind of sleazy. And meanwhile, his his wife is... Oh, she's a perfectly terrible person. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, she's just... I mean, he's pretty terrible too, but she's the pits. Um, And, but not unusual in that way. She finds a nanny for her daughter. The nanny is undocumented. So she thinks she can take advantage of the nanny in every way and make her work for next to nothing and make her work 80 hour weeks and sleep over rather than as she was promised, you know, she works nine to five and maybe she has one overnight and Mm -hmm. exploits her in every way possible. And she also has been bringing up her daughter, who's now about six, to believe that she is allergic to everything and is incredibly Mm -hmm. fragile. And of course, the daughter takes to her nanny, uh, her new nanny, and likes, you know, the food, wants to eat the food that the nanny makes for herself which is very spicy and really begins to live and have some kind of sensory life, which her mother has been depriving her of out of fear or anxiety or whatever. Yeah. But the nanny, and this is a great actor, I think, but she is not only a great actor, she's an extraordinarily beautiful woman. Uh, And the last image of the film is unforgettable. What happens in the film is she has a son and she's come to the U.S. because she is a single mother and she had an affair with a married man and therefore she and her son are outcasts and wherever they live in Senegal. And she wants to bring her son to the U.S. and that's why she's working. And for a long time in the film, she talks to him every night on her phone. But she also is... And this is one of the rare films that does this right. She is some kind of seer. 
she has some kind of connection through her dreams and her unconscious life with more than is going on in her immediate surroundings. Mm. And she is aware that something bad is going to happen. And this is developed in a relationship that she has with an older woman played by Leslie Uggams, if you can believe it. And Leslie Uggams <laughs> is wonderful. And she is the mother of a guy who's interested in the nanny, who is just also a lovely, beautiful actor. And the Leslie Uggams character tells her that she is a kind of seer yeah. or witch. But her visions begin to drive her crazy. And the film is so good in that it has another explanation, a much more dialectical materialist explanation, which is that in the room they put the nanny when she has to go to sleepovers, black mold is growing. And you know, black mold can get into your brain and make you crazy. Right. And she goes mad, not irretrievably mad, but she does go mad oh, let's tell it, and comes out the other side of it. <laughs> I mean, the movie doesn't hinge on what what kind of crazy stuff is going to, is she going to, you know, hallucinate? You know, it's not, she, she doesn't just end up being a kind of victim um, in that sense. Right. And that's why it is different from Black Girl, because the heroine in that movie becomes a victim. Yeah. I remembered her name. Her name is Anna Dia. Uh, the actress, and the film has something in common with Maddie Diop's movie that made such a sensation two years ago about the women who are left behind when the men go to look for work in Spain. Uh, Atlantics. Atlantics. I mean, that relationship to contact with spirits or magical systems is really there in this movie as well. Yeah, and the other thing about the movie is just the look of it, just, the, I don't know, the, the kind of oppressive, like, cleanness of, of the apartment, that that kind of contrast with the, the city, which, I mean, when she actually goes on the street and she's walking the street, it, like, the world is more alive. But, uh, yeah, that apartment just sort of felt like bad news <laughs> from the beginning. Yes, and... I think she probably lives uptown, you know, the mm -hmm. place where she has a room when she's not being forced to live in this loft and do overtime at night. Um, I mean, you see a little bit of what, <laughs> I hate to say it, the gentrified Harlem looks like now in mm -hmm. the movie. Mm -hmm. And you also see a park where the nannies go with the kids during the day. And this is like a really, your average New York City park, which is not a place that anyone would want to take a child, but where everyone does, you know, because right. <laughs> there's no grass and the swings are old and like that. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure it's in Tribeca. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> it hasn't been no. converted into a dog run or something. <laughs> exactly. And this is a, a, is this a debut feature? I want to say it is. Yes, it is a debut feature. And it is just stunning. I mean, I, I do truly think it's a great film. So that's uh, Nanny, Nikyatu Jusu, and 
in some ways, you know, the natural segue uh, would be to another movie that has dramatic and horror elements in it, and that is Master. Right, and the reason it's such a great segue is that these two directors are black women. And interestingly, I read something, this is not directly about these two films, but that 52% of the films in Sundance this year are by women, which is a good number. I mean, they've been approaching 50% for a while, and this year they went slightly over. But in terms of the submissions, only 28% are by women. So, of course, some guy said, well, why is that, that there are so many women in the festival when they had so few submissions? And is this some kind right. of affirmative action? And, you know, Sundance is for filmmakers who have a point of view that you have not seen before. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why there are a lot of women in it this year and a lot of people mm-hmm. of color. Yeah. So Master is by a black American woman director, Mary Am Diallo. And this, and she also wrote it, um, and I was mentioning Nanny, I think, so that director wrote Nanny. Yeah. Um, I mean, Master is set in a fictional, like, Ivy League-style university in New England. It kind of kind of has, like, a, a dual perspectives that you're, you, you go through this world. Uh, one uh, is a, a student, and I just felt that a lot in, like, the beginning of this movie and the beginning of Nanny, where things are happening to the characters that are emotionally harmful. And, and I, I mean, I, I mentioned that just because I think both movies do a good job of weaving that into the movie where, you know, also more kind of traditional spectacular things are, are happening. Um, you know, like in master when she's at, for the student character, she, she brings back pizza with her friends right. um, and she's paid for it. So she's like, oh, so yeah, that was, that was 30 bucks or whatever it is. And, and they just kind of talk over her, <laughs> just ignore that. Um, because for all of them, they all just assume that whoever gets the pizza, they pay for it. Like you're, they're not going to split the costs. Um, and then she, she mentions it again. And then one of them is just. Well, I paid $8 for the wine. Do you want me to split yes. that too? This is the, yeah. you know. Her, her roommate, I think, right? Yeah. 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 She, and she's a freshman and she's rooming with someone mm-hmm. who's not. And she's been placed in this room which has a history and then you discover that in the history a woman who I guess was assigned this room killed herself it wasn't clear to me whether she hung herself in the room or she hung herself elsewhere but the room has a history of being haunted even though her roommates do not seem at all phased by this this was back in the 60s and this previous student was I think the first black student at the university and she hanged herself in the room. Yeah. It becomes just kind of like a campus legend that, that they tell each other and they try to, you know, they try to scare her um, by telling her this. So that's, I mean, that's one thread in the movie. And the, the, the other thread is following a professor, a black woman at the university. She has a friend who is up for tenure. Um, she has just been promoted and is, you know, also privy to these committee discussions about what to do about, about the tenure and what to do about this or that issue. So you kind of, yeah, see the campus through each of their viewpoints. Um, and, th- and then I guess she's somewhat of a mentor for, for the student as well. I think so, but that's not, I mean, there are a lot of things in the movie that as the movie goes on are not really clear. 
there's a whole plot thread about oh, right. witches. And <laughs> it's not only that someone hung herself in the 60s in the room, but nearby there's a place where witches were either burned or hung in the 17th century. But that was really not clear to me at all. But it's a reason that the whole, this whole, you know, house in the school is haunted. That, yeah, that wasn't clear to me that it's some, it seems to be some combination of, of this community of people who still dress in the 17th century garb and the whole, yeah, the whole campus, you know, there's, there's this undercurrent of the evils of, of the past not having gone away. You know, there are these kind of cutaway shots to portraits on the wall that, you know, where the faces will be skulls or something are distorted. And this just ultimately didn't add up to, to much for me. And the, I found the last like 20, 30 minutes to be kind of disastrous. I, which, yeah, I can't even give away what happens, but it felt like some kind of Hail Mary past. <laughs> to, to, I don't know. <laughs> to like have a twist and tie everything together at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I think there was something there. I think there mm-hmm. was some interesting ideas there and certainly an interesting performance. Well, by the two central actresses. Regina Hall. Who plays the housemaster. Yeah. And she's really good. And the young woman who plays the only, it seems like the only black freshman in the school um, (laughs) is really good too. Yeah. Her just to have her name. Her name is Zoe Renee. But I, it just doesn't come together. It just, as, as a film, it just doesn't cohere. But I would in the end say it was one of the more interesting films that I saw. Yeah, I kind of yeah, I kind of appreciate what it's trying to do, and then and there are these interesting little little touches, like her friend who was up for tenure. She seemed to be kind of in the nineties in a way. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, that's a uh, master, and I guess that's that's already that's something that's going to come out on Amazon. Mm-hmm. I don't know, a couple months, I think. Uh-huh. That was the same section as Nanny. They're both in U.S. Germanic U.S. competition. Uh-huh. But to switch gears a little. Oh, well, not entirely, actually, because keeping up with the theme of uh, witches, there is a movie uh, called You Won't Be Alone, which I did not finish. So uh, I finished it. And (laughs) but while I was watching it, I kept up a running dialogue texting a friend who had watched it. uh, So I wasn't interrupting her. And um, Uh and she kind of fell for it. I really loathe this movie. <laughs> and it's just gotten the best reviews of anything in the festival. So that's just so... Uh, <laughs> uh, and I kind of kept up this running, the Saturday Night Live version of this movie. <laughs> um, yeah. This is by an Eastern European director. I don't think he's... Serbian, except there are Serbian production credits in the movie, but he is definitely Eastern European and it's definitely shot in Eastern Europe. And it explained to me a lot about why I think that Agnieszka Holland's movie Spore is such a great movie. Mm. Because, you know, in the end, I'm a dialectical materialist. And in Spore, 
there's none of this Christian mysticism shit about women's bodies and blood <laughs> and, yeah. and innocence versus devils who are portrayed. It's always having wolves. I mean, did you ever think that the reason that wolves are killed with impunity in the U.S. is their devil's spawn? Uh, that, that just made me furious about this movie. Anyway, I love Spore, and I really loathe this movie. So <laughs> it begins back in the 17th century, and it is a movie that goes through history, renews itself every 20 minutes by moving forward in the history of people living in wherever this is, and where men rule and women are basically treated as vermin, um, except that they have beautiful bodies with snow white skin that's covered strategically with blood uh, and shown that way at every possible opportunity, even though this is supposed to be a movie about women being oppressed and finding a way to overcome their oppression. It's such a crock. Uh, and also... <laughs> As a friend of mine said, well, it's about more than feminism because it's about gender. Because in the middle of this movie, as this character of this beautiful young girl who gets each time, she's like seven and she grows up to be 16 and she is being hovered over by a leprous witch who tries mm. to take her as the witch's own daughter and train her to eat living animals just bite into them and drink their blood and because they're not vampires they're witches so it's not blood it's flesh too and um learn how to do that and that she should hate all men and take nourishment wherever she can get it and blah 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 blah, blah. and in each case the young girl cannot do this and doesn't follow the witch who is really the devil and goes to some village where she is then humiliated, beaten, cast out. And you have, she's replaced by another young girl. And that young girl gets a little further in claiming her own dignity, if not her rights and comes in danger of being burnt as a witch herself and has a baby. And finally, the young girl is in a situation where she grows up with a young boy mm -hmm. and actually turns into the young boy. And so it becomes Orlando in the middle. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and then this is a Saturday Night Live version, but it's true because the boy Orlando, as opposed to being as androgynous as Virginia Woolf's Orlando, is the spinning image of Robert Redford in The Way We Were. <laughs> so she's turned into this boy, but in the next segment, the girl is somehow back a little further along the lines of progress, and she actually makes a marriage with this beautiful Robert Redford boy, who then is eaten by a wolf or something, and it just goes on and on like that. <laughs> and the movie begins, ends like many movies at Sundance. The line at the end is, and yet... And yet, and then it's over. I mean, one thing, this is not a review because I haven't seen the whole movie, but one thing that got me is that they also, they give this shape-shifting character 
they make her talk in like Poto and Cabengo speak. <laughs> right. You know, which was kind of driving me crazy. I, I have to admit, like the, the notion that I guess because she, she basically grows up in a cave or something with, and it's a wild child, but they, she only grows up in the cave in her first incarnation. Yeah. After that, she doesn't. Yeah. So I got really frustrated that the movie then is just insisting that she is going to be in this like conveniently, you know, naive of semi-aphasic state for the rest of their multiple lifetimes. I just thought that was, uh, you know, not something I wanted to see through. <laughs> and then the changes, like, I, I don't know. Somehow I thought that she was possessing each of these beings, each, each person that she became. You mean the the original girl is possessing each? Yeah, I think that you could read it that way. I think that's the correct reading. She enters the spirit of each next generation. Yeah, she's kind of like body hopping. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, that's the history of coming to consciousness. <laughs> that's, that's, these are not women. These are somehow consciousnesses that find their way into human shape. Yeah. As if your material circumstances didn't really shape your consciousness. It's only your opposition to some leper's witch. It's the only <laughs> dynamic in your life. <laughs> this is a new theory of, of, of uh, <laughs> yeah, this is a new theory of consciousness. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, because this is one of those Eastern European movies that whose basis in art is Christian mysticism. I mean, there's mm. no doubt about that. And so we've got the soundtrack that's full of every overused piece by Arvo Parr. And we've got the Berlioz Requiem for the End of Time. And every section he trots out some overused piece of music to tell us that this is some kind of spiritual thing that's happening. Yeah, with the camera work to, to trying to evoke some combination of like her naive point of view and nature's cosmic point of view or something. It's, it's really laid on pretty, pretty thick and yeah. <laughs> We've done it. <laughs> We've decimated it. It's, it's, it's... We've torn into the body of this movie and come out with bloody mouths. <laughs> <laughs> so we can, we can now hop to the body of a new movie. So yeah, that was, uh, you won't be alone. And I bet it wins some huge prize in in uh, yeah. world dramatic competition. I bet it wins a huge prize. Yeah, I, I could see something like that happening. So uh, moving along to... Resurrection? Yeah, to Resurrection, a movie that has gruesome elements, but I feel uh, is 100%, you know, worth it. <laughs> but another movie about women and madness and second sight Yes. But a much more of a genre movie. Yeah. Or, I mean, you know, it's interesting. It's, it's, it's a genre movie and it's also almost like a, I mean, it, I guess at times what fascinated me about this movie is that it was like a case study in a way. Like it was this kind of psychological study of like what happens if you really follow through all the way in, you know, one person's perception of what's, what's happening to them. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. So this this is about a it's a young executive. She she lives alone with her daughter. I guess she seems to work maybe in pharmaceutical company or something. Can't figure it. Yeah, it's it's sort of left elegantly vague. I thought 
She's played by Rebecca Hall. And who gives one of the great performances. I mean, no better performance yeah. at Sundance. I don't believe there's another one, but just an absolutely brilliant performance. You know, as a young actor, she did absolutely great Shakespeare because her father was mm. Peter Hall. And she mm-hmm. was one of the great Juliets and one of the great Violas, and she was still in her real teens. And then she never got roles in movies until this one that used her really brilliant talent and her extraordinary gift for making long, long speeches sound <laughs> as if they are really coming out of her mouth in real time. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, she has a speech in the middle of this movie where she's describing this thing that happened to her. It must go on for 10 minutes unbroken. And you are yeah. just riveted. And it's, even though she may be going mad, it is so clear what's going on in her head and what she remembers. She is just amazing. Uh, I, yeah. You know, I'm seldom knocked out by performances like this, but she is just great. Yeah. Yes, her character's name is, is Margaret. She has a person in her past who she's basically been trying to avoid, but surfaces, resurfaces in her life. And I'm quite happy to leave the rest of it pretty vague because, yeah, moments like that speech uh, and other things are, I think, great to experience cold. You know, you, you can guess that the person from her past, just from the billing of the movie, I don't think I'm giving anything away, is, is Tim Roth. And the whole movie is just sort of following her on what happens when this past resurfaces for her. Yeah. And um, without giving it away, the scenes between her and Tim Roth, there aren't all that many of them in, in terms of the length of the movie. But they play mm. together so brilliantly. And I yeah. also felt like I had forgotten what it is like when you see two actors who can really play off each other. Yes. That well. That was all really, yeah. Yeah. It's, maybe it's so uh, kind of unfamiliar for people to be given the space to do that, that it reminded me of, of I don't know, being at a play <laughs> more than... Uh-huh. Yeah, and also I just liked how they were two actors who were getting to these points. They were getting to these points of, uh, you know, intensity from, I felt like, pretty clearly different ways. You know, mm-hmm. the, the way they were getting there were different, and that made it, like, all the more in- interesting as well. Uh, Rebecca Hall, actually, I happened to interview her last year for this other movie, The Night House. Which I never saw. It's sort of a conventional horror movie, but it's it's also like similar in that in that case she plays a woman whose partner has just died, so she's overwhelmed with grief, and this is just kind of you can't tell what's being like transmuted into actual horror or you know was her husband really involved with some you know demonic organization or something like that? Uh-huh. But she she is amazing too because it all rests on on her shoulders, you know, being in that in that point of view. So you know it's it's kind of an interesting to tackle a role like this in, in, in Resurrection. Um, and I guess it'd also be good to mention that I think we were both fans of this director's last feature, which is Nancy Please. Yeah. And Nancy Please, I thought, would be a big success. And of course it wasn't. And I can't remember a thing about it, except <laughs> I was really taken with it. 
No, that's a movie where like just the feeling of it just sticks with you. I mean, it's just broadly speaking was about was about writer's block. Right. It was all about language. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't think I've seen uh, many movies that are able to get the kind of raw terror <laughs> of that. Mm-hmm. In that sense, this is definitely a movie by that director. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, just as raw and genuinely uncomfortable. And and both movies, they have this really great simplicity in the cinematography. I mean, yeah. what you see is just what it's what's necessary to be seen. Mm-hmm. A really intelligently made movie that packs a punch. <laughs> Yes, it, it it definitely does, um, and also has you know has kind of these strange, unpredictable touches of of humor in it, which you're kind of mm-hmm. afraid to laugh at because you don't know what's around the corner. <laughs> um, right. Then, but I think Re- Rebecca Hole's actually pretty good at that. That was something that was nice about the Nighthouse too, is that she's yeah she has can have a sense of humor about things. So yeah, I don't know what the puzzle is about why about the roles she's been doing. But maybe she'll end up directing more since more than acting since she has a passing. Well, maybe she became a director because no one was giving her roles that really she could sink her teeth into. Yeah, yeah. Bad metaphor given you won't be alone. (laughs) (laughs) And this movie, actually. (laughs) Oh, actually, and 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 just just to mention the, the actress who plays... The daughter, I thought, was pretty good as well. Yeah, I thought um, the daughter was very good. Yeah, because she plays the kind of thankless role of having to react <laughs> to to her mom's behavior, and 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 I, I think she handles it really well. Grace mm-hmm. Kaufman is the name. So yeah, that's that's Resurrection, uh, Andrew Siemens, and another movie that you that you liked a lot, Call Jane. Yes, Call Jane by Phyllis Nage, who wrote Carol. She directs it, but the script is by someone else. And it's Mm -hmm. one of two movies that are about the Jane Collectives, which in the 60s, women from what is loosely called the New Left and the Second Feminist Movement, because abortion was illegal in the United States, they were a collective that became abortion providers, which was very dangerous because you could be arrested and go to jail giving abortions although the Jane collectives tried to recruit doctors in most cases they couldn't and so there were people like young medical students or just people who were skilled in that way who were doing abortions and this is one of the rare movies that I think got the feminist part of the 60s new left movement really extremely accurately Hmm. but basically the central character is a woman who's in her 30s who's from the suburbs of chicago and the movie begins during the chicago democratic convention and she's set up as a character who is very brilliant but has become a housewife a homemaker as people are now calling and She has a daughter who's about 14 or 15, and she's married to a criminal lawyer whose briefs she polishes, and that's the reason he is having some kind of meteoric success, because she rewrites him, and she's much more 
intelligent than he is. Uh, and she gets pregnant and she wants, they want this child. They're, they have a 15 year old and they always want a second child. But unfortunately, she develops this heart condition that women sometimes develop in their third trimesters, something that usually happens, although it does happen in the early days of pregnancy. And so it's clear that her life is in danger. And so she goes to her obstetrician gynecologist and he says, I can't do anything. And the most I can do is take you to the board of doctors at my hospital. And they say, well, there's maybe a 50% chance that you could survive. So we cannot let you have an abortion. And then she tries to plead insanity and no one buys this, that she will kill herself and no one buys this. And what's interesting about the movie and what's already being wildly misinterpreted, that although these two people seem to have a good relationship, he's not proactive in terms of what can he do to get her a termination. He says, I'm a criminal lawyer if that ever gotten found out. And she said, well, are you willing to have me die? And he says something like, oh, it probably won't happen. And we are supposed to think that mm. he is a good guy. I've read two reviews that say he's a good guy. Well, he fucking isn't oh. a good guy. He's fucking like a lot of guys during that period who said, well, abortion, it's women's business. You know, childbirth, nothing I can do. Mm which is probably the most shocking moment in this movie. Yeah. So she starts looking for possibilities and she sees, you know, posted on a mailbox or something, a sign called that says, call Jane if you're a woman and you need services or whatever that said. And so she's smart and she knows what that means. And she calls Jane. And she has her abortion. The, abort the guy who plays the abortionist is really great because he's, he's in it for the money and he doesn't, he's not a doctor, but he's very competent. And she gets more and more involved with Jane. And it's Sigourney Weaver who runs Jane. And it oh, is right. an absolutely great Sigourney Weaver performance because it just has this note of irony and comedy that just walks a line mm. in terms of this character. And um, she gets more and more involved and she learns how to do abortions herself and starts doing them. And her daughter, who seemed to be totally against abortion, finds out and, and comes there and there is a kind of climax and resolution and it all works out. and. The end of the movie is 1973, uh, when the Jane Collective is not needed anymore because Roe v. Wade has passed. But four months from now, those Janes are going to be resurrected, and I'm sure they're already resurrected in Texas. Yeah, and, and this is, I mean, this, this movie was made in advance of, but obviously it was clear where things have been going. And it's also because we just had the 49th anniversary of Roe. Mm -hmm. So there are actually 
three movies in the festival that deal with abortion. There's a Jane documentary. There's Call Jane and the movie that won in Venice, Happening, by a French director. Mm -hmm. A really, really good movie set in 1963. And it has the best line, my favorite line in the festival. So in Happening, this young woman who's about to take her back in, in France and wants to go to college and comes from a poor family and is the most brilliant and hardworking student in her class. She gets pregnant and she wants an abortion and she has no idea what to do or where to go. And she's absolutely determined. And she finally finds her way to Sandrine Bonaire, who plays the abortionist, and is truly great. That's an amazing performance of a 70-year-old Sandrine Bonaire. And you think of her in the Barda movie and Barda's relationship to abortion and signing that petition. I mean, there's a whole history of French women in relation to controlling their bodies. And that's the background never spoken in this movie. But I think it's so amazing that Sandrine Bonaire is there. So the great line in the festival is in this movie. And it's when she's had an abortion, but it hasn't, it takes 24 hours and it hasn't worked, but she thinks it's worked. And she goes to her teacher and he's, you know, just furious and disappointed because she's been doing so terribly in class. And she yeah. asks him if she can have copies of all the lectures he's given in the past four weeks, because it's true she wasn't paying any attention, blah, blah, blah. And he asked if she was sick. And she says, yes. And it's an illness that only affects women. It turns them into housewives. <laughs> oh, wow. I forgot about and that. I that's think great. that's a great, great line. Yeah. So that's that's in spotlight because sometimes Sundance shows films that have already done well at other festivals. Right. Wait, and then Sandrine Bonaire plays... Sandrine Bonaire plays the abortionist she finally finds. And Sandrine okay. Bonaire is the lead in, you know, when she was 17 years old and now she's in mm -hmm. her 60s in uh, Agnes Varda's Vagabond. And Vagabond was made in 77, which is a little bit after Varda, but Varda was such an activist uh, in the feminist movement in France, and that she was one of the well-known women who signed the petition saying that they had had abortions, illegal abortions. Uh, and so mm. when you see Sandrine Bonaire and suddenly it's her and she's in this white <laughs> gown and all of that, that whole history just comes flooding back if you know it. Yeah, that's great. So yeah, that was the third one. And then did you, you have the documentary we, we aren't able to talk about yet because it hasn't yet shown. No, we haven't seen So, well, let's talk about, the, I think there's just one more movie that we were going to talk about. Also a movie that I guess showed at another festival, but in, in I guess, an an earlier version and that's the cathedral uh -huh. was shown in venice uh, as as happening was but it was shown in the venice they're funding these kind of funding showcases it's as shown as a finished movie that the venice film festival helped fund um by uh, ricky d'ambrose i think it's his second feature film he's new york filmmaker he's made shorts as well 
And so I saw it there, but I'm, I liked it, but uh, you, you've seen it here. Yeah, it's an extremely interesting film. And it's also a deeply, deeply, I mean, I found it a deeply disturbing film. And I think anyone who grew up in a middle-class family where there were serious schisms between the sides of the family and people were always fighting and not willing to come to each other's, you know, dinners for Thanksgiving or Christmas or mm. whatever. And uh, and sometimes those rifts were long and horrible. And there's also divorce. Anyway, it is an autobiographical film. And it's an attempt to make an autobiography using, you can't say they're like, it's not like a documentary reenactment, but it's not like a fiction film either. Mm. Because so much of it, kind of like a Bresson film, so much of the emphasis in the film is what this kid remembers of his childhood. And we see him in the film as a, a little boy who then grows up into, I guess, a teenager. But the longest section of the movie, he's a little boy. And people act in a fairly flat way. I mean, it isn't mm -hmm. mannered, but it's not, you know, performances. It's pretty much people saying the words and, you know, I don't know. Yeah. But the emphasis is on the rooms, which are also sets, and the light and things like couches and objects. In other words, what you remember of the environment where these happen, things happen more than the interactions and the happenings themselves. And then it's surrounded with, because this is one of, it's set in one of five towns on Long Island, what I've always called Hewlett, but it's pronounced otherwise in the film. Hmm. And it's a middle-class Italian-American or Greek-American family. They're Catholic, I guess. And, and so I grew up in a, a slightly wealthier Jewish family, but it's the same version of mm -hmm. suburbia and the middle class. And it's surrounded by events that if you live in the New York area, all the bigger events, you know, yeah. because it's like the first bombing of the World Trade Center in 93 is there and the election of Bill Clinton and the crash of Air France Flight 800. And then mm -hmm. it goes all the way up to, I guess, the last thing is Hurricane Sandy and you have the World Trade Center. And these are just kind of passing by because the focus of everyone is what's going on in this house and the restaurants and the spaces that belong to the family. Yeah. But I just thought that kind of emphasis on objects and light. And finally, toward the end of the film, there's a scene that kind of explains that. And it's been very ambiguous whether any of this is real if this is actually set in the house that he grew up. At first I thought, well, he's gotten his family to reenact this, but that's not true. And so mm. that ambiguity between fiction and, in this case, memory, is extraordinary in the film, which is really yeah. amazing. Yeah, and 
a couple of things. I mean, one, the, the glimpses of current events throughout there in this, you know, VHS or, or whatever video, old video style. And I just liked how that gave a kind of, you're absolutely right. It, it just sort of things that are just happening in the background. It's this kind of like peephole view of the, of the world that pales in comparison to the family dramas. So it, mm-hmm. it's like the, for all the events, it's like the local news version of it. You know, it just, yeah. feel, it feels kind of made, made small somehow. Um, and I felt like the 93 bombing was like a kind of quintessential, like, it's like the biggest event you wouldn't know about unless you, you're living in New York somehow. Um, and right. that's it, but it, it wouldn't be like a, a milestone on the timeline for you unless, unless you're here. And then the other thing is, yeah, the acting, it's especially the, her, his estranged father, if I remember yep. correctly, it's been a while. Oh. Yep. He, he is just amazing. He, I mean, the quality of it is, it, it has a, a realism to it where I actually felt embarrassment when he was having, you know, going into a rage. Like that's the kind of vividness of it that it feels like you're just catching it mm-hmm. and that you shouldn't be there to witness it necessarily. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which which is just just perfect for this. I don't know how you achieve that or how you direct that. I have how. no idea how you direct that or how he knew to cast these people. Yeah, who are just not going to grandstand, you know. Yeah, or, and it's not really Brechtian because those performances are much more bravado and they're much mm-hmm. more about showing us the character. Yeah, but this is just—it's like someone hit the mute button halfway and it just worked. Yeah, it really does. Well, I'm glad it sounds like he didn't fiddle with it. So I'm glad to, glad to hear that. Oh, oh, yeah, one other thing on that. It's just, I don't know. I just feel like kind of starved for that kind of movie that is really is trying something new in a lot of ways like that, you know, that, and that feels like it's taking a genuine risk in what it's doing. It's almost like a unwillingly recalled memory, but it'd be great if someone, someone like, misfiled it in documentary <laughs> that would be a, a, a good story to have <laughs> i mean speaking of documentary i mean i guess usually we do cover a, a fair number of documentaries and that's always been a highlight at, at sundance um, honestly in some years there's in some years there's nothing else <laughs> and then in some years there's, yeah there's nothing else yeah and i think you've seen one that i i haven't seen uh, yet uh, and i'd love to hear about and that is the territory Ah, yeah. The Territory is a documentary made in Brazil in the rainforest. And this is a film that took considerable, I mean, courage in the making of it. It follows a woman who is part of a nonprofit support team for people in the rainforest in Brazil. So they're an activist group that supports the indigenous groups there? Tribes in the rainforest. And she uh, is working with this one particular tribe, which used to be some 2,000 people, and at the beginning of the film has dwindled to 200. And I'm sure now, because COVID was beginning to hit there, uh, there are even fewer. And because of the current government in Brazil, ranchers and farmers... Uh, have been given a free hand to go into the rainforest and burn down trees and basically make settlements. And, you know, they are claiming they're poor and they have a right to the land. And after all, there are only 200 people and they do nothing. And it's very interesting to see that the indigenous people are really looking over, taking care of the rainforest, which is 
necessary to all of us. Mm-hmm. And people are just coming in and destroying it and destroying them. And there is this potential of violence all the time, some of which happens in the movie, but not a great deal. Uh, oh, and wow. this woman is extraordinary. Uh, I mean, there's violence done to the rainforest. I mean, there are huge fires and uh, cuttings mm. and just general devastation, which is heartbreaking. And the indigenous people don't have guns, but they go out with bows and arrows and they form brigades that protect their territory and put up fences. And sometimes they're successful and sometimes not. It's a great documentary. Yeah. I mean, it basically is what Raoul Peck was talking about in Mm. that very long documentary he made for HBO that I thought should have been three times as long and he should have taken three times as much time. But but it's really a thing. Right. This, yeah, this could be a new, another chapter. So that's, yeah, that's the territory, uh, director Alex Pritz. And speaking of territory, we have covered a lot of territory. So. We can probably wrap it up there unless you had any final words you wanted to say about any other movies or anything. No, I mean, I think it's a a really very, very good edition of Sundance. Hmm. I'm really happy to go right back on now and look at the second Jane's movie. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm watching more movies this way than I ever would make it through at Sundance. So that's great. Yeah, it's true. One can really just log on and... (laughs) And log off when you go to sleep. It's it's really all right. Well, thank you for thank you as usual for taking a tour of, of the of the films. Thank you for having me and we'll talk again. Yes, absolutely. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. Please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.